continue our study in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're in a section where Paul is talking about the earthen vessels containing a treasure. Remember we talked about that? And that the earthen vessel was, uh, the type of earthen vessel he's talking about was the cheapest kind of um, vessel that you would have in the ancient world that would easily crack and it was so inexpensive that you would never fix it. You would just go get another one. So uh, it's, not, it's sort of an irony that you would put a treasure in something so fragile as that. And that, that's just an irony. The discussion about the earthen vessel, it, it, it just shows us that the weaker, the weaker vessels hold the most important treasure there is and when that vessel starts to crack, all the more reason to grab onto that treasure, meaning the gospel and yeah. so on, all the more reason to grab onto it. Otherwise, we'll fall apart and lose the treasure. Amen. Amen. All the more reason why we need to guard the treasure, because it's, it, the important thing is the gospel. Let's begin with prayer and pray for our service this morning, pray for people that may be suffering in any way, and pray for the flock around the world that also listen in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another Sunday morning to gather, to open up the scriptures, to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to provoke one another to love and good works, and to pray for those who are hurting and suffering. Lord, we lift them up. And Father, we pray for the dear ones who have been robbed of fellowship because of apostasy in churches, and so they have to listen on the Internet to find the spiritual food that they need. We pray that you would begin to help them find one another, find your remnant in whatever part of the country or whatever city they're in so that they can gather together and break bread and pray and fellowship around the means of grace. So we pray for them. And we ask you to open our hearts and minds to the truth of your word as we study it. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. Okay, it says here in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our body. This is the, the second of three purpose clauses I pointed out the other day, Hina, it's translated in order of that. It's a Greek word, Hina. It's a purpose clause. So, caring about in the body the dying of Jesus was in order that the life of Christ would be manifested. So, Paul's suffering, he's talking about himself here, but I think it would certainly apply to all because we'll look at some cross-references that show that. But his suffering has a revelatory purpose and should not be disparaged. And one of the things that Paul was struggling with was the fact that his opponents portrayed him as weak and ineffective and really not a good example because he had gone through so much suffering. And the super apostles portrayed themselves to in a lot better light because they looked better, they were more eloquent, they didn't have all of the uh, disfiguration. I mean, who, who can imagine what Paul must have looked like after all of the stuff he'd been through? And this, you know, they didn't have plastic surgery back in those days. Did you know that? 
And so when you got stoned and, and all these different, you know, your body beaten and stoned and all those things, you're just going to look like a very unattractive figure. And so Paul's analogy is that he's simply caring about the dying of Jesus, which is an analogy. Now, the dying of Jesus was a literal thing, of course. Jesus died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. But he is using it as an um, analogy. And the word dying there is, in the Greek, necrosis. Necrosis. We know the term necromancy, that's speaking to the dead. Well, necrosis is a Greek word that is, describes the process of dying. The Greek word for death is thanatos. Thanatos, death, death. But this is dying. It's a process. And so as Paul is going through life and suffering for the sake of the gospel, he's in the process of dying. And in this process of dying, he sees himself as caring about the dying of Jesus, meaning, of course, the message of the efficacious death of Jesus. Paul's dying isn't efficacious to save people. He's just a sinner saved by grace. Right? But Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is efficacious because it was a justifying death whereby his blood avert, paid the penalty for sin and averted God's wrath against our sins. So Paul's dying can only be effective if the process is bringing the gospel to people. All right? And that's what makes it worthwhile. Otherwise, he's just suffering. And just pointless suffering. But if indeed the gospel is going to people and bringing life to them, then, the, then he says the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. So Paul's sufferings are not just because of being frail humanity, but they're a testimony of Christ and his work of deliverance. Now, um, Professor Garland has uh, a point that I wouldn't have known myself had I not looked up in my scholarly resources, but he claims that there's another procession analogy here. And earlier, remember the procession analogy where it was a um, triumphal procession? He always leads us in triumph in Christ. And I played that little clip of audio from John MacArthur talking about the triumphal procession that they used to have in the Roman world that most people, if they were lucky, saw one of those once in their life as the Roman army came back victorious and they brought out all of the dignitaries and all of the booty from the, the, the battle that they'd won. And, and Paul uses that procession analogy uh, earlier in, in Corinthians, and I preached on that and showed you how, the, how he used that. Well, here he's using a different procession analogy that's very much like the one in 2.14. According, uh, accordingly, let me just read some of, about that from my scholarly uh, commentary. Uh, Duff offers, he, that's another scholar, the intriguing suggestion that Paul is using the imagery of a Greco-Roman epiphany processions in which the devotees sought to attract attention and new converts to their cult with a parade. Such pageantry grew increasingly lavish as devotees carried the symbols, sacred objects, and images associated with the rites and the saving action of their god or goddess. 
If Paul has such common religious spectacles in view, he offers another striking metaphor for evaluating his sufferings. It parallels his other reference to a procession, the Roman triumph in 2.14. And then he has here side by side a comparison with 2.14, who always, there was a time element in 2.14, here always, leads in triumph, here carrying around the dying of Jesus in procession, as in Christ, as in our body, us in Christ, in, as our, in our body, and so that the sin of his knowledge, 2.14, the life of Jesus, here, he manifests through us, here, I mean, back in 2.14, here he manifests through us. So there's a very striking analogy between the triumphal procession and this passage. And so I may have a procession analogy, only a different type of one. In contrast to the ostentatious golden vessels used in pagan processions, the gospel is unimposing and needs no swanky window dressing or pomp and circumstance. The danger of such displays is that people will be so distracted by all the tinsel and glitter of the vessel that they will ignore what the vessel contains. Paul is an earthen vessel and his life and dying point to Christ. He does not strive to imitate Christ's sufferings, but the sufferings of Christ are working themselves out in his life. Now, there came to be in church history a lot of false teaching based on misunderstanding Paul's terminology and assuming that somehow you could add to the merits of Christ through your own suffering. And that became part of Roman Catholic dogma, was that it was possible to the add, add to the merits of Christ through suffering. Now, there's a passage um, that, besides this one, Colossians 1.24, why don't we all turn to that one? That one's misused, and I'll tell you what the answer to that is if you hadn't heard me explain it before when I was preaching through Colossians. Colossians chapter 1. Here we go. Colossians 1.24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings, same topic, for your sake, and in my flesh I do share on behalf of his body in filling up, which is the church, in filling up that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, some people took that to mean that Christ's sufferings were um, not totally sufficient. They took it literally. And they suggested that when people took upon themselves willing suffering, they could perform meritorious works on either their own behalf or the behalf of people in purgatory or somebody else. Okay, so then you had that whole kind of cult of suffering that developed. And and some of these false ideas, by the way, got into the church really early. Okay, there was a cult of martyrdom in the first 300 years, where people thought that if you were martyred, you, would have, you actually were a higher class Christian than one who just died normally, so they would try to get martyred. Okay, They'd look to, please martyr me, please martyr me, and would try to provoke martyrdom because they thought it would do them some good spiritually. Um, uh, back, uh, Bill. <laughs> now, I'll explain what this verse really means in a moment. Yes. Yeah, just as a point of history, I was taking a history of medicine class, and they were talking about the flagellists that used to go out in Europe 
and uh, flagellate themselves and parade through towns. Well, what happened was is they brought with them diseases. And so towns that didn't have a disease, uh, they infected and uh, oh. you know, went from town to town. Wow. So there were processions back then. Now, uh, this passage, the key to it is what Paul, Paul's use of a word in the Greek translated filling up what was lacking. All right? Now, the cross-reference to that that helped me understand it is found in Philippians. Um, oh, I hope I can find it now. I'm so used to finding things in my computer Bible. The paper one is really slow. I would have had that in two seconds on my computer. No, it's in verse chapter 1 or 2. 2.30. Yeah, there it is. Philippians 2 and verse 30. Is the same Greek word as used in Colossians 1.24. And this gives us the key to Paul's meaning, because this one is really easy to understand. Because he um, came close to death, that is the person, Epaphroditus, who was sent with the gift for Paul. Because he came close to death for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was deficient in your service to me. What was lacking. Same Greek word, as in Colossians 1.24. Now, what was lacking in their service? They had taken up a collection or a gift for Paul. How did Epaphroditus make up what was lacking? Anybody? He brought it to Paul. Okay? What was lacking was actually getting it to him in prison. They already had the gift in Philippi, but it needed to be brought to Paul. So he risked his life to bring the gift to Paul. And the way Paul made, made up what was lacking in Christ's sufferings was by bringing the message to the people who needed to hear it. Okay? And that's precisely what he's saying here in, 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 in uh, 2 Corinthians. All right? The only thing lacking in Christ's death is, is people hearing about it when they hear the gospel preached. In, in the, right now, right today, in, in 2000. And seven, what's lacking in Christ's gift is that there are some people who haven't yet heard the gospel. Okay? Once they've heard it and either believed it or rejected it, there's nothing lacking. They have the gift. So Paul's sufferings weren't adding to the merits of Christ's sufferings, as some people in church history falsely assumed, but they were, they were the means God used for Paul to bring the message of Christ's suffering to others. Okay? Does that make sense? Now, in our passage, he says, always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. Same basic idea as Colossians 124, so that the life may be manifest. So his sufferings were part of the means that God used to bring this message of a suffering Messiah to people who needed to hear it. Okay, there, uh, the fact that the, that, that the Jewish Messiah who suffered and was crucified is offensive. And it has been for a long time. People are offended because they think that, why would God do that? What kind of a way is that to save people? There's going to be some better way for God to save people than to kill his own son. You can read um, Justin Martyr's dialogue with, uh, Trifo, a Jew, and you see the same discussion. That's a fabulous piece of church history. That 
I've read that thing in its entirety twice now, at least. And because I wanted to know in 135 A.D., what kind of debate was going on between Christians and Jews? Well, what were their discussion? And Trifo asked the same questions that are asked today. And one of Trifo's points was, somebody that hangs on a tree is cursed. So how could how could how come you say this is our Messiah? How could Messiah be cursed? That's a Trifo asked Justin Martyr in 135 A.D. And the question still exists. Okay, and the. The answer is that this is God's choice about how he was going to bring salvation. It pleased God to, in, in this way, as offensive as it is, to save those who believe. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Now, I have some cross-reference. Um, uh, uh, Robert's mom. What's your name again? Margaret. Margaret. <laughs> Would you like to read a verse? Where are we? <laughs> oh, I'll give you one. If you could look up Acts 18, 9, and 10. Okay. And Robert has the mic there. And then, Linda, if you could look up Romans 8, 17, and 18, and Denise, 2 Corinthians 13, 4, 2 Corinthians 13, 4, Joanne, Galatians 6 and 17, Galatians 6, 17, and Dick, Philippians 3, 10, and 11. That's 18, I think. Acts 18, verses 9 and 10. Oh, they all say that. None of us need hearing aids, do we? What? Can you say that again? A lot, of, a lot of people now just that are over 50 went to too many rock concerts when they were teenagers, didn't they? <laughs> are you ready? Uh, yes. <laughs> now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months, teaching the word of God. Okay. He's continued there. So... Uh, the Lord told Paul he had many people in that city. Now, that's how, that's how we should see gospel preaching. That should, uh, that's how we should see outreaches. That's how we should see uh, whatever we do to further the gospel, spread the gospel. We don't know who they are. No, nobody told Paul who those people were. And so in a city, God has people. And they don't yet know it. <laughs> those people don't know it. They're just going about their lives as sinners. But the way we find out who those people are that God has in that city is we go to the city and preach the gospel. Amen. Okay? And that's, that's the only way you can ever find out. And that's how Paul did. So then Paul goes into a city. He preaches the gospel. He stayed there. He discipled. And God gathers a church. Amen. Whoever responds is who God added to the church. That's, that's what it looks like when God's adding people to the church. And... One of the great things about evangelism and, and about new converts, if you have a gospel-centered and a Bible-centered church, is that once God does gather those people that he had, if they are given the pure milk of the word and nothing else, they will grow thereby, and it will happen every time. Yeah, it's it just absolutely. It's like uh, Brian and Kevin, I talked to you guys today about gardens. Those two guys love to garden, and they're complaining because their tomatoes are getting so high they want to fall over, right? Well, what do you have to do? 
to have those tomato plants like they are. You don't create a tomato, right? It's not that you figure out the biochemistry and in, in the uh, photosynthesis and all that stuff. You maybe know that or maybe you don't, but it's not even necessary. You just need to know about seeds and soil and fertilizer and sun and what they need to do. And they will grow because they had the right environment. The same is true for a Christian, according to Peter. And if, if as Paul did, his example is so perfect. It's go into the city, preach the gospel. Whoever responds, that's the church. And once you have a church, you provide them the pure milk of the word. You teach the word of God clearly and forthrightly, making applications week by week by week. And those Christians grow. They become strong. They become bold. And they become the next generation of gospel preachers. And they want to go out on the street and share the gospel or wherever they with their relatives or whatever. And they become evangelists. And they absolutely grow. Okay? And, and, and there's... It's so, it seems so simple, doesn't it? You don't have to go hire ten people with degrees in therapy. and uh, You don't have to have an entertainment pastor. and, and uh, you don't need, you don't, all, all you need is this pure milk of the word. And that's what causes the Christians to grow because God creates the Christians in such a way that that's how they work. He recreates them through a work of regeneration. So Paul's uh, willingness to suffer was so that the message got to the people who need to hear it. That's what has to happen. And there, sometimes there's a price to pay. So that was Acts 18, 9 and 10. Now Romans 8, 17 and 18. I'll start at 16. Um, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And of children, heirs also. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Okay, now that passage is, is for all Christians. Now it isn't just Paul the Apostle who suffers. Excuse me, suffers. It's all Christians. We suffer with him. If we suffer with him, we shall be glorified with him. Now, uh, I think, Dick, what did we talk about? We talked about that on the radio. Well, in Romans 8, back when we did that, I remember us talking about, I had a list of different ways that it's true that Christians suffer with him, just by nature of being Christian. One of them is this. You suffer the rejection of the world, right? Because you, you, are, you come bearing a message that the world doesn't want to hear. And it's not how you make friends. It really doesn't help you make friends most of the time. I know when I, when I was converted, my friends at the feed plant, I was working in a feed plant down in Iowa, um, it, it brought immediate uh, ridicule, especially from this one guy. He was just so angry that I had become a Christian. and he, It's like it was his goal to try to make me not a Christian. And his, his reaction was so violent and... and um, it, it, but it was probably, I told the story before, I think it was God's way of making sure I didn't backslide. Because uh, that guy was so nasty, I wouldn't want to give him the privilege of watching me backslide. <laughs> I was, was going to prove him wrong, and I, that God really was working in my life. And, and they misunderstand, but that's, that's what brings some suffering. Is I think that your friends, when you become a Christian and you've you're, you got friends, if, you become, if you're converted as an adult, 
they start thinking that now you think you're better than them. Oh, so now you're one of those goody, goody people. Now you're one of those religious people. Oh, uh, uh, Dewey got religion. I heard that one. <laughs> and, and, and so they, they assume that because they don't know any better or they don't want to believe any differently, they assume that, that Christianity is a religion of works. All right? And so that if you are a Christian, that means you do better works than they do and you made, made yourself a better person. And so we could say, no, no, it's not like that. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. But it's, it brings that sort of a, a division. Okay? And sometimes people lose family. You become persona non grata even at holidays and events. Or if you are invited, everybody stays away from you. Because <laughs> you might start up on your religious talk. And so the sufferings of this present time are not worthy. Now, we all suffer physically because of aging. But the, and so that's true, too. But it's not worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed. And I believe that's literally true. We, can't, we have to know that by faith because we can't see exactly what eternity is like. But it's literally true that it'll be, we'll, we'll think this was nothing. You know, there's an analogy in John about childbirth. After the birth, the joy of having a child causes you to forget the process that was so painful. And was, eventually you have this little baby and it's so fun and, oh, okay. Yeah, it was a tough thing, but look at the joy we have. Okay, go, go on. Yeah, tell her teenagers. Yeah, yeah. They're nice little bundles of joy until they're about 8 or 10 or 12 or somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I know. Then you get some more sorrow. But, but it, it doesn't just end in sorrow. I can speak for experience. You go through all that stuff, but then they grow up and get married, and they bring a grandkid into your life, and then, then it's good again. Yeah, and then you get the, and that's even more joy than your own kid. Because they go home. <laughs> Some nights. <laughs> okay, Denise. <laughs> Is it Second Corinthians thirteen four? Uh, Two Corinthians thirteen and verse four. Yes. Okay. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. That's that same analogy. Okay. Jesus was crucified in his human body but live by the power of God. So therefore, we who live in weakness, not exactly the same. Now remember, the the analogies aren't uh, exact. They're they're analogies. There's a difference. Only Jesus' sufferings are efficacious for anybody. The only way ours is is if, if they're in the process of bringing the gospel to somebody. And then that's efficacious only because of what Christ did. Not all, all we were with the messenger. But yet there's an analogy, and that one that Denise read is the very one Paul's making here in Second Corinthians 4, so he reiterates it later. And then, uh, Joanne, you had uh, Galatians 6.17. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Yeah, so another analogy, brand marks is how, how that translation said it. But all the scars and, and things, the wounds that Paul had, he called, he said they were the marks of Christ in a sense of because had he not become a preacher of the gospel, he wouldn't have been beaten. Right? He was the one who wanted to beat the Christians. He was the one wanting to do the persecuting. 
But when he was converted on, uh, on the road there, he became the target. And so that's the only reason he had these. Yes. Okay. Uh, Philippians 3, 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Hmm. Famous passage in Philippians 3. I preached through Philippians and discussed that. So that um, ultimately Paul's goal was the resurrection of the dead. Verse 11. Let's move on to the next verse now. Verse 11. 2 Corinthians 4.11 For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that, there's our third hina um, in the Greek, in order that, purpose clause, in order that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Now, I believe this is basically a recapitulation of the same idea asserted in verse 10. And he expands it. It's just we who live now, Christians that is. If we're alive and we're a Christian and we are serving God, we are constantly being delivered over to death. Now, we were talking about Romans 8, and there's a passage there. Dick, while you still have the mic, could you look up Romans 8.36? Because the same basic idea is there, and it's a citation of Psalm 44.22. Romans 8.36. 36, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Yeah, so that was citing from the Psalms. And the people of God were put to death all day long and considered sheep for the slaughter. Now, why did the psalmist say that? Because the people of promise, because the Jewish people under the Old Covenant were the recipients of God's messianic promises, the the land promise and the seed promise to Abraham, because of having those promises, they became the target of the hatred of the different peoples throughout history. There's a a spiritual reason for anti-Semitism. And that spiritual reason is the promises of God. And so Satan will always stir up, anytime he gets an opportunity, different attacks against the Jews, the pogroms. Now, the psalmist lamented that. The psalmist said, because of your sake, we're put to death all day long. And that was true. Now, Paul takes that and brings it on into the New Covenant. And this is something uh, that, that I think we should understand out of Romans 11 and Romans 8. is because Christians are grafted into the Jewish olive tree and are participating in the promises given to the patriarchs, they also get to be handed over. Okay, So, we, so having received the promises in a way that they did, Satan's hatred is directed against Christians the same way it was under the Old Covenant against the Jews, and it still is against the Jews. <coughs> so Satan's hatred is against Christians and Jews because we are the people who are recipients of the promise. So the pas- passage in Romans 8.36 is a citation of Psalm 44.22, but it applies it to Christians. All right, And the only way to escape this sort of reaction... 
Now, it varies. It varies from, depending on from nation to nation of what, about what's tolerated by the civil authorities. In some nations, Christians are killed and tortured because the civil authorities don't protect them. Um, in some other nations, like in America here, where we're protected by civil law, they have to resort to calling us names or don't talk to us or uh, just sort of, sort of personal rejection uh, because, or whatever they think they can buy with. But the reaction has always been the same and is caused by the promises of God. Now, there's a one way to get out of this. All right? I'm not recommending it, but I'm going to tell you what it is because I know most of the church is getting out of it right now. The one way to get out of it is to quit confessing. The issue is always confessing. Confessing. In, uh, in the first centuries, when the Romans were persecuting the Christians, they were only interested in getting them to stop confessing. And if they were willing to deny under trial, they'd let them go. All you got to do is say some words. They'd bring them in and say, okay, curse Christ, swear by the genius of Caesar, burn incest to the gods. If you're willing to do that, we won't throw you to the lions. We won't burn you in a fire. We won't torture you. You're free to go. That's all you got to do. Just say the word. And the reason they did that was that they did not want to persecute anybody who really wasn't a Christian. In other words, if you showed up to Christian meetings and you were kind of inquiring or you had Christian friends, they, the Romans, discovered that true Christians always would refuse to deny why? Because they were more brave in those days? No, because that's the nature of a Christian. The Holy Spirit. Now, I don't, none of us feel like we'd be able to bear up under that. And those people didn't either. They didn't think ahead of time they could, but they did. Now, why did they? Because of God's mighty, powerful grace is as great as any trial that you can ever get into. It's grace. Yes, go ahead. Did you have something? Uh, there's a lot of, uh, there's really an enormous amount of uh, criticism against um, dominionism and reconstruction as it's found within uh, Christianity. Uh, okay, so we have a society that's against Christians because they perceive those who hold to those doctrines as Christians, and oh, they're yeah. now suffering persecution. Yeah. So, uh, likewise... The Jews also have a doctrine that's been with them for centuries called Tekin, where they believe that uh, everything and everybody uh, must come in unity. Okay, And they are, they're suffering persecution uh, because of that particular doctrine. Okay. Uh, so my question to you is this. Is all persecution uh, against Christianity um, a, a result of righteousness? No. Thank you, Bill. Good point. And there's a Bible says that. Peter says, if you're buffeted for your faults, what glory is that? Okay? And if we teach error and we're persecuted for it, there's no glory in that. Now, the Jehovah Witnesses, which are denying the deity of Christ, claim that they're persecuted. Well, maybe they are, but not because of Christ. Okay? Yeah, that's true. You can be persecuted because of stupid false doctrine that you shouldn't be preaching anyhow, like Reconstruction. Uh, I totally agree. Uh, it, it needs to be about the Bible and, and nothing about the gospel itself and the personal work of Christ. The only message we really ought to be persecuted for is the true gospel. Amen. Nothing else is going to bring any glory to God or any reward to us. Okay, Gretchen. Yeah, um, this week I, um, 
I'd been feeling so poorly, just my age and whatever. But there's this lady that I work with closely, and I've been praying for the Lord to soften her heart. And I haven't been backing off. I've been praying, and I listened to her, and she gives me information about the workplace. But anyhow, I, I just couldn't take it anymore. But rather than accuse her of anything, because it's Satan that's working on her, I turned it over. And Wednesday, Thursday morning, I looked up, uh, your strength is sufficient for me. And this is Paul. But when I backed up a verse to 2 Corinthians 12:9, my strength is sufficient for you. In other words, Paul didn't boast about his sufferings. He boasted about the Lord's strength. And the minute that I had that, my day took off. And ever since then, it's like, how do we know we can stand persecutions? Because my strength is sufficient for you. Amen, Gretchen. <laughs> Thank you. And it also shows you the, how effectual the Word of God is when, you know, when God brings the Word and gives you the answers. It's the Word of God that gives you the answer. Now, this failure to confess is the key issue in discernment. When we did that Faith at Risk 1, I did a whole lecture on discernment based on 1 John 4, 1, confessing. And the reason why that is the one thing you need to know about discernment is that confessing is a work of the Holy Spirit working through a Christian. All right? When you look at Luke-Acts as a two-volume work, which it is, you'll see that. Whenever the Holy Spirit comes on someone, starting in Luke 1, what comes out of their mouth is a confession of the personal work of Christ. Whether it was Zacharias or Simeon, or Mary, or John the Baptist, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they confess Christ. They go to the, pass forward to the day of Pentecost. Jesus says in Acts 1 and verse 8, you will be my witnesses, marturion in the Greek, after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And when the Holy Spirit came upon the early church, you know, we've, a lot of people focus on the speaking in tongues, but you know what they said? They heard those guys in these tongues saying? They were testifying of the marvelous works of God. <laughs> and then Peter got up and preached Christ. And you go through the rest of Acts, and you look up the times that the Holy Spirit comes on people. And there's more often than just these events like at Cornelius' house, but sometimes in, in prayer. The, the apostles prayed for boldness to speak the word when they were persecuted. The Holy Spirit upon, came upon them, and they, conf- they went out and confessed. Yes? Uh, the passage is in uh, John 15:26. Uh, it says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Absolutely. Thank you. Perfect. Perfect. Now, string together all those verses, and in 1 John 4, it makes sense. Now, the the reason we are seeing a massive lack of discernment, in my opinion, just my opinion, is not understanding this. And people are not actually applying what it says in 1 John 4.1. Because if you actually applied it, right, 
let's just say you're a member of a church and you're going to the church. And, you're, and, and so somebody's up in a pulpit speaking for God, supposedly. Apply First John 4, 1, literally, and see what you get. That's all I'm saying. And if you don't hear the confession, the continual, bold confession of the person and work of Christ, including the call of the gospel to repent, then the Holy Spirit's not at work. That's all I'm saying. Okay? Does that make sense? That's, I'm just trying to make it simple. You know? it, that's, the, that's the easy way. Yes, Dan. <laughs> I'm not going to give you the mic. <laughs> God bless you, brother. Pastor says he gives the gospel, and we can rejoice in that. It's very difficult on the street, and all these fine people. One example is I'm at the nursing home, and they're praising the Lord, and the little lady's doing all this volunteer work at the Lutheran, and she does not understand. It. You know, I like to rejoice with somebody in the God. Oh, I'm not going to argue with you. They don't understand the gospel. The woman on the street in front of the post office yelling at me that she sings in the choir and she does this and she does that, and Peter's going to let her into heaven. The other man at work yelling at me that it's when your number's up, it's up. I said, that's right. When your number's up, the day is the day of salvation. You're either with Christ or you aren't with Christ. So out on the street, it's just small. It's not. It's small stuff, but Satan's all fired up with all the little people, which we function with, uh, testifying against the Lord. And we have to make a stand. The preacher, I go to the Berean church, and the guy says, what are we protesting when I get outside telling me to park? I said, didn't Martin Luther protest the Catholic church? It's selling indulgences. Don't you understand? Or a step program with the pastor that gives the gospel three steps in James. No, it's the word of God. It's the Holy Spirit in you that will move you. It's not a step program. The word was made flesh, dwelt among us, and, and it stands the test of time. Heaven and earth to pass away, not the word of God. Not step program. Everybody's got a program. They're all fired up. <laughs> They're all fired up. I'm not kidding you. The little man's fired up. You testified him. He's fired up how good he is. He's got a testimony. But we're, I'm worn out. I'm completely worn out. And I have to get here so I can get with somebody and rejoice in the gospel because we understand what it is. But on the streets, with all the Christians, supposed Christians, I'm worn out because hardly any of them understand the true gospel. Well, thanks for sharing it with them, Dan. <laughs> Say, that's a pretty good sign that somebody's not converted if you ask them about the hope within them and they say they sing in the choir. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Dan, Dan, the reason for that, though, is that they, all religions, save biblical Christianity, believe in salvation by works. It's the default. You know what default means in a computer lingo? Default is where, where it goes if you don't make any changes. In other words, if you have um, whatever, when you launch your computer, whatever it does, or if you have a program... The first thing it does without you telling it anything is default. Right? And so when I'm using that as the religious term, I'm saying the default position is works. You know, unless God converts somebody, everybody believes in works. I did. When Christians were witnessing to me, people like you, Dan, they were witnessing to me before I got saved. Yeah. And you know what I said? Well, I went to Sunday school for years. <laughs> okay. Got that going for me. <laughs> So, yeah, that's just what, what we believe. So, confessing Christ is a necessary thing. Yes? 
just to just to join into what he was just saying, I think one thing that I'm realizing more and more and more is, you know, when you're at work and stuff like that, you can have the most pleasant conversations when you're talking just about God or when you're talking about church because most people are very comfortable with both of those topics, but it is amazing, you know, you got to bring up Jesus because it's all it's all about what they do with Jesus and it's amazing how you start talking about Jesus, that's when you get kind of the, the strong responses where people get upset and stuff like that because you can talk about God all you want and people generally don't have a problem with that. They're not offended by God, no. they're offended by Christ. No, exactly. Now, the, the, the big lie that Satan has been getting a lot of people to believe is that you don't have to offend people. You can make a version of Christianity that doesn't, and it's just as valid. But it's just not true. The gospel is still going to defend people because of its nature. The Holy Spirit, what does he? What did you read? The Holy Spirit testifies about Jesus, right? So how do you know the Holy Spirit's at work in anybody whatsoever? They testify about Jesus, Amen. right? Now there's also fruit of the Spirit. I'm not saying that's the only thing that's true of Christians, but it's the most important one. Now First John four says, "Beloved." Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out in the world. A false prophet is someone who claims to be a Christian and claims to be speaking for God. But they're not. How do you know? By this you know the spirit of God. How do you know? Here's what it says. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Now that's exactly what Paul was doing everywhere he went. Now Jesus Christ has come in the flesh isn't just a code word that if you utter the phrase, that proves you're a true person from God. It is the confession of the incarnation and all of the implications of it. What does it mean that Jesus Christ came in the flesh? Well, let, let me just let me unpack that phrase. Jesus Christ came in the flesh. There's so much there. First of all, Jesus Christ. Christ means Christos the Greek, and it means the anointed one. So the first claim that this confession is, is that Jesus is the anointed one, that is the true Messiah. All right? Secondly, that Jesus Christ, Christos, the true Messiah, came. That means he preexisted. See, oh, there's, there's more in there than you think. So he, he came, that means he wasn't just an ordinary person who, oh, this one turned out, the, the spirit, you know, the avatar idea, you know, the spirit, there are all these... Uh, Christ, who may claim to you know, here, be here, there, and the other. Well, only Jesus came. So there, therefore, he's the Jewish Messiah, and he preexisted as God and with God. He came in the flesh. He had a real physical body. He wasn't a ghost. He came in the flesh. All right? And then all the things that John had said about Jesus earlier, he's bringing back to mind with this little phrase about repeating First John 1. We saw him, we touched him, we handled him, the word of life. That, that, and so on, and it includes, the incarnation includes the doctrine of Jesus' efficacious death, burial, and resurrection, and he bodily ascended in the flesh, in the, in the resurrection body. Now, that is what ought to be confessed so that you know the Spirit of God is there. And so, what are people actually looking for when they, when they think this? Depending on your background, I guess. It just, everybody's got a different... Uh, Inclination about what, what it would look like for the Spirit of God to be at work. Some people would assume you fall on the floor. Some people would look for apostles and prophets. Some people would look for numbers. 
there's a lot of things, but it's clear that we that this is the key. Now, back to our verse. We who lived are constantly being delivered over to death. Now, I was explaining why. Why is because of the confession of Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Um, uh, delivered over uh, is, is the same term used about Jesus. The word in the Greek for delivered over is found in Matthew 17.22. Whoever has the mic. Go ahead, Robert. Matthew 17.22. So, um, there's, there's an analogy with Christ going on all the way through here. Suffering, he suffers, we suffer. He was delivered over, we're delivered over. Okay, Matthew, Matthew 17.22. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Yes, the word betrayed is the same word translated delivered over in our passage. It's the same word in the Greek. Okay? So there's an analogy with Jesus was delivered over to death and Christians are being delivered over to death. And I have one more uh, little tidbit from Garland. He says this. His affliction bestows benefits for others by producing not only comfort, 2 Corinthians 1, 6 or 7, but life. Everyone could see Paul's physical frailty, which the persecution and suffering only magnified. But Paul was also aware of the stirrings of divine life in and through him. He carries about the death of Jesus for the purpose of disclosing his life, that is, his resurrection life, in order that others might be saved. Bachham pinpoints the logic behind Paul's thinking. Quote, If God's definitive salvific act occurred through the weakness of the crucified Jesus, then it should be no surprise that the saving gospel of the crucified Jesus should reach the Gentiles through the weakness of the apostle. So God uses the things that are not to confound the things that are, that no flesh should boast in his sight. Yes, uh, Brian, you want to, and then Robert. I, uh, I was studying this last night, and I found this commentary. I, I, I cut and pasted this. I thought it was quite, quite good. Uh, we may wonder why the Lord allowed his servant to go through such testings and trials. We would think that uh, he could have served, Paul could have served the Lord more efficiently if he had allowed his pathway to be free from troubles. But this scripture teaches the very opposite. God, in his marvelous wisdom, sees fit to allow his servants to be touched by sickness, sorrow, affliction, persecution, difficulties, and distress. All are designed to break the earth in pitchers so that the light of the gospel might shine out more clearly. Wow. That's good. Good. Amen. <laughs> yes, Rob. I was just going to add one more comment um, about what does it look like when the Holy Spirit comes. And you go back to that passage in John, this time the beginning of chapter 16 in verse um, 7 it says, Nevertheless I tell you the truth it is to your advantage that I go away for if I do not go away the helper will not come to you but if I depart I will send him to you and when he has come he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Absolutely. That's what it looks like. Yeah, that's what it looks like. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now, that doesn't mean that the world is going to like that. 
Okay? But that's what he does, and he does so through the preaching of the gospel. Now, let's just unpack that a little bit. I've got a couple of minutes, as long as we're unpacking verses today. Convict the world concerning sin. All right? In other words, this isn't a category people want to hear about. They don't want to believe that they're sinners. They don't want to believe that they've broken God's holy law. So the Holy Spirit will convict through the preaching of the law and the gospel that there is such a thing as sin and what the penalty for that sin is and why we need Jesus. Okay? Right? Convict the world concerning righteousness. All right? Righteousness means right standing before God. And when the, when the world is convicted concerning righteousness, it means that they're seeing that they don't have right standing before God unless God does an act of salvation. Okay, that I'm not right. I am not righteous. I'm not right before God. And that's something he requires of me. The Holy Spirit convicts concerning righteousness. And then judgment. That there really is judgment of sin. It's a real thing. It's literal. It's going to happen. And every last one will have to give account. And so that is something that we don't believe if we're not convicted by the Holy Spirit. Um, I think, Brian, you were telling me once, because you were remembering what it was like before you were a Christian. Uh, You want to give it advice? You were saying, uh, what did you think about hell? Because I know when we did the radio series, we were talking about these Christians kept telling you you were going to hell. What did you think? Um, I thought it was a mythical place. I, I didn't believe that there was any particular hell. I just believed that everyone's really good, and why would this loving God condemn anyone to hell? So I just I believed in a, a rather superficial God where God is just love. You know, he's just a loving God. And I just didn't really believe that there could be such a place if God is, is nothing but love then he could never send anyone to such a horrible place. So I thought it was a way of manipulating people that Satan was really a concoction of the Christian church in order to subjugate you and make you show up to church and make you give money and things like that. So I really thought it was a mythical place. And why would anyone believe if God is love? That would he, he would condemn And, and that's, that's why you can just preach, if you exclude everything else and preach God as love without anything else, people are happy with it. Sure. And, and you were saying earlier about, you know, confessing Christ. Well, you know, you've talked about the emergent church. They don't, you know, they don't confess Christ. They don't preach Christ crucified. They preach themselves. And that goes right back to works-based theology They talk about what they have accomplished. I have helped the poor. I have given money to people with AIDS. Those are the type of things that they confess, but they don't preach Christ crucified. Yeah. You know, really, it's just the same story. Like Dan was saying, he talked to a person who sang in the choir. The difference would be, well, this looks better. You're singing in the choir doesn't look so great, but, you know, helping cure the world of AIDS, that looks really good. Yeah. well, there's a verse uh, we just went over this morning, uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Yeah. So these guys that uh, uh, Brian is mentioning, uh, you know, say, well, we're preaching ourselves because Christ is in us. Yeah, but you preach Christ. 
Right. Yeah, yeah some, will, some will say that, but you know, then they also justify an internal you know, journey inward because Christ is there. But no, Christ is seeking bodily at the right hand of the Father. We're indwelled by the Spirit only if we're converted. Well, that's what Paul meant by being delivered over to death because whatever was happening, the next verse we'll start with next week, death works in us but life in you. In other words, Paul's being delivered over to death, but it was worth it because the gospel came to the Corinthians and God brought them life. And so it was very well worth whatever he was going through. So uh, the key is the confession of Christ. And our sufferings are of only a value if they're done for the sake of Christ. And not just because we're doing something that God didn't want us to. Okay, so this morning we'll be studying from Luke during the service and help with the chairs and have a time of fellowship. Never got to my book. <laughs>